What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, flamethrowers. It's Shireen here. On Tuesday of this week, eight people, including six Asian women, were murdered at a separate shooting in different spas in the Atlanta, Georgia area. They are Dayu Feng, Zhijie Tan, Delena Ashley Yun, Hyun Grant, Suncha Kim, Sun C. Park, Yang A. Yu, and Paul Andre Michaels. Burn it all down would like to hold space for the grieving community and have a discussion about the intensity and what's happening this week for the Asian community in Canada, the United States, and beyond. With me, I have Dr. Courtney Sito. Dr. Sito is an assistant professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's University. Her research focuses on intersectional justice in sports and physical activity. She is also the managing editor for Hockey and Society. She's on the advisory board for the Black Girl Hockey Club. We're also joined by Alex Wong, who's a freelance writer based in Toronto and the author of the upcoming book, Cover Story, the NBA and Modern Basketball is told through its most iconic magazine covers. He has written about issues related to Asian representation in sports for the New York Times and ESPN, The Undefeated, among other places, and has been part of a formal Asian writer program offering one-on-one mentorship to aspiring writers. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us. So this has been an absolute shit week. And how, first of all, how are you both doing? Alex? Yeah, no, maybe I can start. You know, I think, um, you know, I think it doesn't help, um, to be honest, to, to be living in a pandemic for, I guess, over a year now. I feel like a lot of us are managing a lot of things day to day. And then, you know, hearing a lot of these Asian hate crimes that have been happening, um, and especially the incident this week in Atlanta, you know, honestly, for me personally, it's just been a huge difference. I've been thinking a lot about this of, you know, as, as an Asian person and as a minority, you're always aware that people have these stereotypes and, and racial thoughts um, about, you know, people in your community, but it feels a lot different and it's a lot more, more worrying when you know that you're kind of being a targeted group and, and, you know, starting to realize that, you know, all of this increase in the hate crimes and we know, you know, directly, you know, why those things are happening um is i think the most uh scary part and i think i'm sure for courtney and for a lot of other people too it's like i think about my parents and you know i think about my family and my friends and you know it's you know we shouldn't be kind of just living our lives and knowing that we have to kind of look behind our backs and live in this fear and i think that's the that's the scariest thing and you know reading the stories of of these women you know who you named at the top who were murdered um Honestly, it's just hard for me. It's been hard for me to kind of read about the stories uh, about them, but, but I do think it's obviously important to to continue talking about it. 
Yeah, I think uh, just kind of building on what Alex was saying, I think for me personally, the the toughest part is seeing all the social media videos of um, like elderly Chinese women being attacked across uh, across various cities um, and on both sides of the border. I think that that's again, it's like maybe the pandemic is is a little bit helpful in that respect, because um, then I don't have to worry about my grandma being out on the streets. And then it's kind of like one less thing to worry about. But it's definitely when you see those videos, you, you think of your own family. Um, so I, I think that those those visuals are necessary uh, in some way, but uh, they're definitely hard to watch. Thank you both for that. I wanted to sort of uh, go through one thing and address as well of what's happening in the rise since the pandemic started of anti-Asian hate crimes that have occurred, which are predicated within white supremacy and systems of oppression, but also baseless and really, really also foundationally put upon racist tropes. There is a quote that I wanted to read from Natalie Chu, who is a UCLA basketball player. And she says, quote, uh, I know something as simple as changing the name of the virus can create real hurt. To call this pandemic anything other than the technical name it has been given is disrespectful and ultimately racist. Calling it the, quote, Chinese virus, unquote, and the Hong Kong virus or the Kung flu, quote unquote, or anything of that sort is racist. There's absolutely no need to refer to coronavirus in this way. It's not witty or funny. It is ignorant, insensitive, and prejudiced. And this is from an article is told to Charlotte Gibson for ESPN, March 26, 2020. So this is a year ago, and we still are in the same place, or in, in, in much worse terms in some places, than we were a year ago. Do you feel that at all? Yeah, Courtney, do you want to start? Um, it's definitely worse. I mean, um, I think where this kind of if we can kind of contextualize everything is like Asians are often used to uphold anti-black racism. Those of us seen in the racial middle or known as the quote unquote model minorities, meaning that we're not necessarily seen as a drain on society in the same way that black and brown bodies have been produced. Uh, and most importantly, that we don't complain about the racism that we face. We have historically been used as a weapon against black, Latinx and indigenous communities. So white supremacy says to black and brown communities, look at those Asians. Um, Look at them, they work hard, they keep their head down, they don't say anything, they don't cause any trouble. Why can't you be more like them? And this framing is problematic for a few reasons. One, it creates tension between BIPOC communities. Two, it's not contextually accurate because it ignores the way that immigration facilitates who comes to a country with money usually, um, and then they're able to, to move up the social ladder. And three, we are still always foreign, regardless of how many degrees or positions of power we accrue. So the fear around Asians has always revolved around um, disease, disease and deceptiveness. And that comes from a legitimate fear of cultural and or military power with imperialist Japan as a historical example, and now China having both legitimate economic and military power in its own right. Um, so I think what we've seen with respect to anti-Asian racism is it comes in waves um, and that the violence 
is kind of sporadic and it revolves around something like SARS or Japanese internment or when Trump calls it the China virus. So in a way, this wave of violence gives us a little bit of insight or like particular generations into what black communities face on a daily basis. Um, so I think this is just kind of like a peak that we're seeing uh, of a lot of different things coming together at the same time. So. Uh, on most days, the racism that Asians face is about like invisibility, invisibility in the media. We don't get to see ourselves. Um, and then every once in a while, it, it peaks up into these um, more violent manifestations. And, and this is the time that we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, you know, I think a really good point, Courtney, I think you made too, is that I feel like a lot of people, and I'm probably speaking more to people outside of the Asian communities, um, you know, don't realize kind of just the history of racism um, towards uh, Asians. You know, I think a, a lot of these conversations obviously have been centered around, um, you know, the rhetoric, um, you know, by, by Trump um, in the U.S. of pushing uh, these narratives and obviously having a direct impact on these hate crimes that are happening. Um, but I think it's important for a lot of people to realize, too, like, what Courtney has mentioned, um, it's there's a long history of this, right? And I feel like we only kind of participate in these conversations when there is um, these kind of violent, uh, these surge in, in violent crimes. And the other thing I think is important for me too, and I think uh, I, I would call myself out on this too, is that, you know, a lot of times I feel like when I have these conversations, you know, I like to just use the term Asian as if it's some kind of catch-all term, you know, as if it's it's kind of just this, just this monolith. And, and, you know, it's funny to me because uh, it's not funny, but it, like, you know, it's like, I think about these, these women that were murdered, like how many of the people reading about this story even know about their ethnicity, you know, outside of the fact that, oh, these were Asian women who were killed. Um, Chinese people, there is a whole diaspora of that. You know, when you look at Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, you could go on, right? And I think it's important. Um, I know the starting points are hard for a lot of people um, to, to participate in this conversation. And there's a lot, a lot of work to be done to just kind of educate everyone on, on a lot of these topics. But I do think it's really important uh, as a starting point for everyone to also realize that uh, Asian people is not this monolith, because that's one way that it drives these stereotypes because of a president calling it the, the China flu, suddenly it impacts every single um, Asian community. And, and to me, you know, that's another point that I feel like uh, people should be aware of and be talking about. Alex, to that point, very much that those within East Asian or Southeast Asian communities are not, they can't be identified in the way in the, the communities that they belong to, which is in itself, I mean, as somebody who's I am technically Asian from that continent, but, you know, South Asian and that from my community, I get, you know, the, there's a conflation between Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and like all in India and all this kind of thing that people don't realize it. And the deep histories are so rooted there. But just to pivot to another, to another part, this whole issue about this specific type of racism that's definitely has been existent in the history of it. How has it affected sports in that sense? Like you focus very much on basketball and this isn't something that's new. This has been around for a while. So how is this affecting sports as we know it? 
Yeah, you know, speaking just particularly to the basketball space, because because like you mentioned, I guess that's the space that I pay uh, closest attention to. You know, you know, I think the the most obvious example, and, and probably I guess the only example, because there, there's just not a lot of Asians, you know, playing in basketball, uh, has been Jeremy Lin, right? And you know, from from I don't know how long ago this is now, probably a decade or, or longer since he was in college. You know, he's been talking about uh, opposing players and fans uh, shouting racial slurs at him, um, and even showing up to the arena and, and, you know, the security having to check his badge, even though he's a player on the team, something that wouldn't happen to him if he didn't look like the way he did. Um, and of course, most recently, um, he spoke out because he was playing um, in the G League um, and one of the opposing players called him uh, coronavirus on the court. And, you know, he declined uh, to name the player. And I think his reasoning was that, you know, this wasn't the whole point of it to, to call someone out, but he wanted to make an example out of the situation. And I believe what the league did was actually, you know, launch an official investigation um, into the matter. But yeah, you know, I think from the basketball space, you know, Jeremy has been, you know, unfortunately kind of the, the only example that we can continue to point to. But, but I think his experience is very reflective of, um, you know, what any other um, Asian in sports uh, would face, you know, whether it's man, a man, a woman, or in any sport, you know, basketball or, or anything else. Courtney, the PWHPA released a statement on this, and I hadn't, I'm not sure, and forgive me if I'm incorrect, I haven't seen any other organization really do it. How did that come to be? Um, we haven't, I guess we haven't seen too many from the hockey space, you know, what's going on upstairs, but um uh, they basically just sent it to me to to have a, a look at before they sent it out. So we kind of, um, they came up with it on their own. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's a result of um, the work we've been doing this past season. So I've done six sessions once a month um, with the PWHPA and we've covered, you know, everything from indigeneity to uh, intersectionality and um, cultural appropriation. Ironically, um, one of the things we didn't cover was anti-Asian racism. And when I was trying to figure out kind of the programs that we would do, I had figured, well, it's not as important. Like they need to know the fundamentals. We need to get like the, the both sides of the um, spectrum. We need to understand whiteness and we need, need to understand blackness and, and indigeneity. Um, and then the middle stuff, you know, we can get to at a later point. Um, and so now I'm like kicking myself that I didn't think that uh, it wasn't more relevant. Um, and then they could have been a little bit more prepared for this moment. But I think that's the, that's the issue is that there's so many different things to cover when we're doing anti-racism anti education. And it's like, how can you do it all? And yet it's all super interconnected once, once you're kind of down the rabbit hole. But I mean, props again to the league. Like, I didn't think this type of discussion would actually start or manifest in women's hockey. So, I mean, that's great. Like, it needs to happen. And I'm wondering if you, either of you feel that sports organizations have done enough to address this specific topic. And like, at those intersections, there's been significant talk of anti-Blackness and police brutality. But what, how are the intersections doing here? And how are they coming into play? Alex? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think... 
um, you know, with regards to just sports organizations um, in general, and, you know, maybe, maybe I'm speaking more in general terms in terms of just how they're overall approaching um, a lot of these anti-racism and police brutality initiatives, even beyond just covering kind of the anti-Asian hate crimes, you know, I think there's a huge difference between um, what these organizations do publicly versus the steps that they're taking, um, you know, behind the scenes. You know, I think it's it's nice to um, make public statements and it's nice to organize discussions um, and have panels about it. And, you know, Shireen, I know I shared with you, um, you know, I, I recorded a panel with members of the Raptors organization this week uh, for uh, Asian members um, to discuss this topics. And, and this wasn't a reactionary thing. You know, this was something that was actually organized um, over a month ago. And, you know, just as a way to kind of start the conversation, you know, about kind of Asians in the basketball space. But that's nice and all. And, and you know, I've let like MLSC and the Raptors organization know about this, too. But, you know, when you're talking about understanding the real issues, um, not just in Asian communities, um, but obviously within the basketball space and within the media space that I operate in, a lot of those conversations are probably more constructive if we have them privately. You know, if, if I can kind of share those experiences of other writers that I've talked to and things that I've noticed about processes that are preventing other Asian writers from having kind of the equal opportunities that we want. And I feel like a lot of organizations sometimes view those conversations as combative when I think most of us are just trying to come to the table um, to get the fair to get the fair shot. That's it. And sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes I think um, a lot of us just want the opportunity to just share our point of view because it seems like that nobody wants to listen. So I guess that would be kind of my larger takeaway answer uh, to you, Shireen, is that, you know, I think the statements and the acknowledgement of these things are very important. But to me, they're just a starting point and it feels like all we ever do uh, you know, whether it was the Black Lives Matter movement or the anti-Asian hate crimes now is, is we just always do the start of the conversation, but there's never kind of a follow up to actually enact actual change. Yeah, I would agree with Alex there that it's like um, the, the statement is nice just so that we know that people are paying attention and that they are not completely obtuse to the world around them. But beyond that, they don't actually have any meaning. Like it doesn't, it doesn't invoke any feeling uh, in me when I read these kind of uh, press statements that, that are released. And in theory, instead of organizations releasing one for Black Lives Matter when things come up, one for anti-Asian hate and just kind of doing these uh, spot checks, they could just have one that talks about white supremacy and they put that out every time in theory, right? Like we're not addressing the real root of the problem, which is overt white supremacy that exists throughout society. So it's like, yeah, we stand with this community, we stand with that community, but like, what are you actually doing in your own community so that we don't have to have these conversations? Um, so yeah, we're, we are um, far from where we need to be, that's for sure. So some very prominent athletes, uh, as Alex Menson, Jeremy Lin, um, but also Chloe Kim, Caitlin Ohashi and Taylor Rapp, he's the safety with the Rams, have been using their social media. And the responses have been, you know, overwhelming and people just saying they didn't know about this stuff because sometimes people just simply don't know. So do you think that 
athletes have a, and this is a very similar question you hear about uh, black athletes. Do you think it's a responsibility of these athletes, of these particular athletes from this community to use their social media and their platform, considering there's so few, there's really not a numerous amount of professional sports. So do you think that's something that they're, they should be doing, Alex? Yeah, no, I, I think definitely, you know, because like you mentioned, there's just not a lot of voices. And, you know, for everything that we talked about, you know, about how statements are often just the start of a conversation, you know, I, I don't want to take away from the importance of it either. You know, I think for, for a lot of people, um, especially a lot of people in the Asian community who are huge sports fans and look to these athletes, just seeing the acknowledgement, you know, sometimes I think we underestimate how big of a difference that can make to a lot of individuals um, that are following these situations. Um, and I think the other thing too, you know, in addition to, to, to the Asian athletes that you've mentioned is that, you know, seeing, you know, people like LeBron James or Dwayne Wade, you know, people that I pay attention in the basketball space, um, speaking out about it too. You know, for me personally, seeing that was, was important. You know, I think just right, right now, just kind of acknowledging the issues is, is very important. So I think it's great that a lot of these athletes are doing that. Yeah. I mean, I think my consistent gripe with, with athletes, but really any, anybody that's got a social media account is that they're probably not using it to its fullest capability. You've been given this great megaphone. What are you actually um, using it for? Not that we can't have puppies and, and fun memes on there, but um, per, one of the greatest things that participatory media has given us is the ability to, to amplify our own voices and, and the voices of our community. Um, so I think I think we've seen social media more as like a corporate tool for a lot of these athletes to brand themselves and things like that. And uh, hopefully that this is kind of a sea change that people realize that it's not just that it can be that as well. Um, but you can do a lot more with it and enhance and add depth to your brand as well. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. Um, so how can our listeners and do you have information on how our listeners can actually help uh, eradication campaigns of anti-Asian hate? Are there places we should look to to donate? Yeah, you know, I just want to call out a, a few of these networks. You know, one of them is called uh, Red Cannery Song. And, you know, they're a network that seeks advocacy and resources for workers in uh, Chinese massage parlors across the country. And another one is Butterfly, uh, which is an Asian and migrant sex, work sex workers, sorry, a support network. And Actually, if anybody's looking for just a full list of resources, uh, GQ Magazine actually has a very good um, kind of compilation of lists that you can sort through. Um, I know a lot of times when people are looking for resources, sometimes the hardest thing is, is just where to look um, and making their own personal decisions on kind of what makes sense for them to donate towards. So I believe if you go to GQ Magazine's uh, Instagram page, you will find one of their recent posts. Um, has all of them and you can kind of click on the link through. And if I can, before I pass it to Courtney to, uh, you know, for, for people, you know, obviously podcast listeners, I like to just recommend, I think um, Jay Caspian Kang, um, who's a writer that I respect very much. You know, he, he has a podcast called Time to Say Goodbye that, that discusses a lot of these um, different Asian issues that he hosts. Uh, with Andy Liu and Tammy Kim, you know, I've learned a lot from from their conversations and they have a lot of smart guests on um, to talk about a lot of these topics. Um, and about the history of, of racism um, towards Asians in, in America. So um, that's just another call out maybe I can make if anybody wants to check that out that they want to learn more. 
Uh, yeah, I think Alex has given great list of uh, resources there. I think I'll add some kind of like individual things that folks can do. Um, one is that you need to speak up when you hear people using this term like China virus, like you need, that's an opportunity for you to be part of the solution. Um, we need media depictions that reflect the athleticism that exists within the Asian community. Um, that's a huge thing. And um, if you want some fun viewing that is good learning as well, the Ugly Delicious series on Netflix, I would highly recommend. It goes, it's about Asian food and Asian culture, but also how cultural appropriation is one form of anti-Asian racism. It's like, why are you willing to pay only $10 for that dish in a Chinese restaurant? But if it's a fusion restaurant served by a white chef, you're willing to pay $25. It's the same thing. It's like, um, that's what leads to these kinds of uh, larger forms of oppression and discrimination. So it's a, it's a fun watch if you're into the food culture. I love that you just pivoted for me. Exactly. My favorite topic is food because I had asked you both what your favorite foods were. And because I was like, at some point, I want to kind of make this light. I mean, I understand the gravity of this discussion, but I did want to point to what you just talked about is food and culture. Alex, favorite food? Um, chicken feet. You asked me. That's what I told you, right? I, uh -huh. I literally, with my friends, uh, John and Jamie, a few years ago, you know, we started this like t-shirt brand. Um, God, every person has a t-shirt brand. Um, um, of, of just putting, printing kind of our favorite like dim sum items um, on t-shirts. And we donated a lot of the money actually to like the, um, a few of, of the Chinese uh, museums, you know, in New York and, and some Chinatown initiatives here in Toronto. But like, yeah, it's, uh, and, the, and the first idea we came up with was, was, was the chicken feed. And I've always tried to convert, um, you know, people to, to, to trying that because I think sometimes they're a little bit hesitant um, because of the texture and, and the bones involved but you know I've converted a few people I've talked to Serge Ibaka about this all right and he was look a at that hesitant, flex but, yeah big flex <laughs> uh, but like no the uh, chicken feed is my answer I'll, I'll digress on the stories uh I'm here for that court um, so I'm like a bad Cantonese person and I <laughs> dislike dim sum strongly. Um, How is this possible? <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't know. Uh, it's not my thing. And I grew up eating chickens, chicken feet is not my thing now. So I'm okay with folks if they're in the non-chicken feet camp. Um, no, sushi is my go-to comfort food. And if I could eat it every day, all day, that's what I would do. And shout out Miku in the Vancouver or Toronto. If you're happy to send Courtney and Alex free sushi, please do that as a form of solidarity. I'm pretty sure I've been to, I'm pretty sure I've been to Miku like in Vancouver. So Miku, send me some sushi. You know what? I actually refuse to eat sushi in Toronto after eating it in Vancouver. I've become such a snob. It's Courtney's fault. But Miku Oh, is you don't even understand. I, I went to Japan like eight years ago and I've been a snob since ever since I went to the fish market. Uh, there. Okay. All right. I talked down to everyone, including <laughs> you at this very moment. Yeah. Two flat it was Serge Ibaka wasn't enough, Alex. You went there with me on you know, this show. Oh you know my I'm God. not you know I'm not a humble person. <laughs> don't yell at me. Yeah. Totally yelling you after in Urdu probably as well. Um, I was going to ask what and where. Oh, wait, before we go, um, Alex, there was a fantastic story when I told my co-host that I was going to interview you. Jessica asked me, when we were talking about food, asked me, because you have a particular interest in cereal boxes. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. So first of all, it's not an interest in cereal box. You know, I'm just a hoarder in general. Um, I, I know listeners can't see um, the video right now, but, uh, you know, we're recording this on Zoom and I clearly have a virtual background uh, because I'm embarrassed of how my room looks at all times, uh, to be to be honest. Um, no, I have, a, I have a hoarding issue. I, li- I like collecting anything like sports related, like collectibles. You know, I grew up collecting like sports jerseys and just like sports cards i moved on to like sports pins sports patches for a while i was on etsy looking up ohl hockey patches i'm not sure why like it just seemed cool to own like an oshawa generals patch that for some reason i just have boxed up somewhere so to the story about the cereal boxes so you know jessica luther um you know obviously huge fan of her work i uh, love the book that she did last year with uh, kavita uh, davidson uh, loving sports when they don't love you back um you know she had i believe posted on instagram these tim duncan uh san antonio spurs um cereal boxes um because she's from texas right and, and um i of course had no shame and i messaged her and i asked her if she'd be able to send me a box and she sent me five of them so um, they were proudly displayed. Um, I don't know if she thought I was actually going to have the cereal. Um, you know, I guess it, it was none of her business. Um, and I didn't de- divulge that information to her. But yeah, they were proudly displayed on my bookshelves for a while. And now I guess they've been rotated out for other um, things. And they are sitting somewhere um, in, in a storage space somewhere. So um, when I dig them up, um, you know, Shireen, I will give you three of those boxes. Yeah, like I love don't, that. Don't let your kids eat them. I, I, I think they're expired. I don't know how <laughs> cereals work, to be honest. I know I'm 36, but yeah. But uh, I love that two of the things that Alex is deeply connected to, just basketball, but also Tim Duncan and Serge Ibaka, which are two of my favorite basketball things. So I was really happy to have that story. On another, continuing down this rabbit hole story, which I love, I was was at Justice House in 2017 and saw that cereal box and was very close to stealing it off her breakfast table, but her son was eating breakfast. And I thought that'd be like really bad etiquette as a guest to like take the food and hide it. But you know what? I think that, I should have, because I think she would have been open to that and been okay with that. She's pretty chill like that. Um, where can our listeners find you, Courtney, and your work and the phenomenal things you do? And I will say this, that in the spaces that you both occupy, you are literally changing so much about the game and the conversations about the game. So my sincerest thanks to both of you. And Court, where can we find your work? That's very kind of you. Really appreciate any time I get to be on with the uh, the flamethrowers. Um, best place to find me would be on Twitter at Courtney Cito. Um, all one word, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-S-Z or Z for the Americans and T-O. Alex. Yeah, you know, uh, Twitter for me as well. Um, Steven underscore LeBron, S-T-E-V-E-N underscore L-E. B-R-O-N and, you know, check out, you know, honestly, um, I think everybody should look up kind of just get more Asian voices kind of in your social networks and your timelines. And, and just, it's, it's important. It's important to not use kind of, you know, these opportunities to, to kind of make statements and have conversations about it and move on. And, and, you know, I don't know how I continue to remain optimistic that, that things can change, but I try to, and, you know, I hope, I hope that, you know, if, as long as we have people like, you know, Courtney yourself and Shireen and a lot of other people kind of pushing these messages that we do, we are able to kind of, you know, create change over time. 
I thank you very much for that. And again, to both of you, I know it's been a really, it's been a shit week and a very difficult time, but I do want to thank you for your time and energy. And again, flamethrowers, uh, you have the links. They were both mess- They were both mentioned. So if you could please do that, that would be awesome. And again, anybody out there, we stand in solidarity against any forms of hate, bigotry, discrimination, and absolutely abhor it. And if you have more information that you want to share with us, feel free to drop us a line. Thank you to Dr. Courtney Sito and Alex Wong.